Hello Substack and Apple Premium. Oh, and I guess just every damn buddy because we're putting Everybody. this one out on the main feed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And welcome to the A Very Good Year After Show where Mike and I uh, turn the microphones back on and talk a little bit more about the show we just did, the year we just discussed, and the movies we did not make it to. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host. Michael Hull. Here's what happened. Okay. We... Uh, we prided ourselves when we started out the season. It was not as a slight to anybody else, but like our show is going to be about an hour because some shows are just too long. Uh, shows I like sometimes it's just too long. You see the the running time on your on the app and it's daunting. And you're like, I don't know if I got. So we wanted to try to stick to about an hour, and we we were really tight on that early in the run. And then as the show has picked up momentum and we've gotten more and more sort of you know really good guests who are good talkers and we suddenly find ourselves in these scenarios where you know we're recording for an hour and a half or an hour 40 and we're having to chop that all the way down you know to to the hour or so and we're sort of stretching the or so which we realize so what we have started (laughs) doing more of which you may not know if you're not a premium subscriber if you're not you know a paid subscriber on substack is we do these bonus episodes we do the after show uh, we, 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 as soon as the show ends, this is not a figure of speech. As soon as the guest says goodbye, we spend like five minutes talking about what else we want to talk about. We turn the mics back on and we record another episode. Initially we were like, oh, this will be a fun little, you know, extra thing as a thank you for paid subscribers, whatever. We'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes. And now these goddamn things are almost an hour themselves. <laughs> um, so that's happening because, you know, the, 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 the format is tight. Top fives are tight. We're trying to get everything in. Lightning round is only five minutes. If you go back and listen to the very beginning of the run, we were trying to do like a 10 or a 15 minute lightning round and that shit was too long. But <laughs> we we want to hit, you know, inevitably an episode will come out and somebody will, you know, will, will, will message us or whatever, comment and be like, I can't believe you didn't talk about yada yada. And it's like, well, we did, but it's in the lightning round, which is in the bonus episode. So we want to make sure you know that, that first of all, we have these things where Mike and I have more to say where we talk about some of the movies we maybe only lightly touched on or that maybe are our favorites that weren't in the guest top five. But then we also do this lightning round, like we pick up where we left off on the lightning round. And Mike and I will do another 10 minutes where we will bat around more of the titles from the year that we didn't get to. So if you're like interested in what else came out that year, should be listening to the bonus episodes. The after show started out as this idea of 10 or 15 minutes, knock out some more movies. Every now and then there's movies we don't really get a chance to talk about. And it has turned into this much larger beast of, you know, (laughs) not only do we go through 50 or 60 more movies from the lightning round, but also, you know, sometimes there's things that feel like maybe they would be a little tough to say on the public show. So we save them for the after show. Sometimes things get very like much more personal in Mm -hmm. the after show than they do. You know, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, you know, right. Things get a little more emotional. Things get a little, you know, they just sort of get a little bit more just me and Bailey in the room in a way uh, that is really hard, almost impossible for us not to fall into just because we've been, talking about movies and how they relate to our lives for so long so the after show really has turned into its own show in a a way that i think you know is really is has turned out really cool in a way that i don't think either of us expected so this is an opportunity uh, we're going to put this one this after show on the public feed we hope everybody enjoys it and we encourage you to sign up if you want to hear more But then the other thing that we've found is convenient to do is a lot of times just in the interest of getting it down to about that hour or so, uh, we have to make some hard choices in terms of, of, you know, losing stuff that the guest says that's fun and entertaining and insightful, but that just maybe takes us off on a bit too long of a detour before we were getting to the, the matter at hand. So, um, some of these episodes we've started with sort of outtakes. We started with with our deleted scenes, if you will, from the episode that we just put out. Joe Lynch is a treat. Joe Lynch is a perfect guest, Mike said at the end of that episode. And, <laughs> and, and, and I agree because he is a filmmaker who knows his craft. He has great stories to tell about the movies he's made and the people he's met. And he's also just a big time movie enthusiast. Who he's has, very enthusiastic. He's super enthusiastic and he will go for as long as you want him to go about the movies that he loves. 
we came out, Mike sent me the first draft of the 1990 episode. And I was like, I don't remember us talking for this long (laughs) because it was a full ass hour 40. Like it was, it was a feature length first draft and it was the the longest first cut we've ever had. And it was like, this is going to be painful because there's nothing Joe said that I want to lose. But we have a format that we're trying to keep to. And so we decided that we were really going to go heavy on this, uh, on our bonus episode in terms of more from Joe. Um, and then we decided in the interest of trying to share all of that with all of you who like Joe and who listen to the show for Joe, and we've already heard from some of you who did. So you would get to hear more Joe. Um, so let's go into some of that and then we'll talk more about 1990. Um, so first and foremost, you know, we spent some time at the beginning talking about Suitable Flesh, which, again, we recommend. Uh, you can watch it in uh, theaters and on VOD October 27th. Uh, here's a little bit of Joe talking about sort of going back into uh, the horror genre, which was kind of his first love. So for this, you know, I had I, it's been a while since I had done anything more formally in the horror genre uh, genre. Um, you know, I've been, you know, doing a slightly more action based stuff, mm-hmm. especially like with um, like the last one, Point Blank. Um, and I wanted to get back to horror, but I wanted to I wanted to have a reason for it. Right. I didn't want to just jump into the fray and just go like, oh, you know, where's the spooky house script? Or right. you know, let me come up with a slasher retro uh, thing, which is, right. which is funny because I'll probably do a retro slasher thing next. Of course. Um, but with this, look, when I had Barbara Crampton email me during the pandemic and say, Hey, I have this script that Stuart, you know, was going to direct and I knew about it already because I talked to Stuart about it. And, you know, when we were talking about it, he was saying he mentioned you as maybe being one of the directors that would be interested in doing it. I'm like, wow. Yes, absolutely. See, Give like, me that baton, you know. Oh, how much fun to get to work with Heather Graham. Wait, Barbara Crampton's in this movie? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, shock of shocks. Uh, no, she. Awesome. And, but not only that, but she, you know, she's the producer. She was one of the main producers who went to Dennis Paoli, who wrote Reanimator from Beyond and all that and said, do you right. have anything else? You know, you could dust off the shelf. And this was one of them. We had fully like, you know, we keep a little clock. We're trying to keep to the clock. The the intro time had fully run out. Uh, and Joe gave us like a wonderful wrap up, which you hear on the show. Where he's like, and 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 that's all I have to say. Uh, and then, of course, me being a genre movie enthusiast, I wanted to talk about Barbara Crampton because here's the thing. Barbara <laughs> is the queen. She is a scream queen. She's delightful. I've had limited opportunities to interact with her online, but they're always enjoyable. She has agreed to eventually come on the show. Nice. Uh, we were not able to get her on after she made that promise because sag afters on strike and uh, we are not trying to ask anybody to scab. Um, but, uh, but we're very much looking forward to having Barbara on next season. So I just wanted to talk to Joe a little bit about Barbara and find out a little bit more about working with her. And here's how that went. But we also had such a great rapport. She was not originally going to be in the film. She was just going to be the producer. It was the last minute, like, fuck it. Why not? You know, because we had like between Dennis and, and, and all of us had, kind of developed the script and that character that she plays in a way that just became more enticing to her. She got really excited about like, maybe I could do this. And look again, having to direct a a, a queen of, of horror and a queen of, um, of the genre, but also just a fantastic actor that is fearless. She is absolutely fearless. And to be able to do that and, and work with her every day on set and then go, Oh, Barbara, by the way, um, can you check on craft service? And she'd be like, you got it. And then she'd like, <laughs> run off. And or, or, oh, my God, an actor didn't show up today. You betcha, Joe. And then she she was one of the best collaborators I could have had on this and my greatest champion on it, too. That's it's that's delightful. And it's so nice to hear that someone who you whose work you admire and who you love as a performer is also just like a terrific human being. That's not always the case. So I'm glad to hear that. It is not always the case. It's also very awkward sometimes when you go like when she'd be asked, what did you really think of Reanimator? And I'd be like, Barbara, I really can't tell you how I really felt about Reanimator because I would probably delve into some some uh, adolescent <laughs> tendencies that I don't think anyone here wants to hear in public or private. And she's like, Oh, you're talking about the head giving head scene again. I'm like, stop it. It's like, no, I don't want to can't talk about it. You're my boss. Let's, let's move on, move on back, back to one. 
a thing that almost always happens on episodes where we go long, like you can set your watch to it quite literally, is that um, we will get started talking about the first movie in the top five and end up going twice as long as we're supposed to go on each movie on movie number one. Joe <laughs> started out about Nightbreed. He had lots to say about Nightbreed. He had stories to tell about Nightbreed. So here's some more of Joe on Nightbreed. Delightful. And what do you love so very much about Nightbreed? The fact that uh, I love how you said delightful. No one said delightful for a very long time when it came to Nightbreed. But that said, it's delightful. Nightbreed was uh, I, I agree. And I like every iteration of that film that I've seen from the uh, the very much maligned theatrical cut to every version, the cabal cut, the director's cut. The, the whatever cut, like there's a, there's a lot of cuts. There's more cuts than there are versions of Evil Dead on Blu-ray <laughs> at this point. But th that, that movie to me, that was like, but that was, and, and there's other movies like this, that was to watch the power of whether you saw this movie in a, its, um, you know, much, uh, you know, ruined form right. as per Clive Barker, to see how even this shitty version of the movie had such a power on the audience, especially when they went in blind. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that I got to watch a movie that made me feel like part of the cabal, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that that was a significant film in my my upbringing. And, you know, it's a shame that Clive Barker only made one film after that. I think, you know, I've had conversations with him and, you know, you could tell he was pretty broken yeah. after that studio experience, how Morgan Creek literally dragged him through the mud and it, it's a shame it's good now that like the movie has um like you know arisen in a way with the various versions totally i gotta admit still like the theatrical version best i don't know why yeah yeah no this one is an embarrassingly recent first watch for me i i it wasn't for the show but it was when the 4k came out just a couple of months back that mm -hmm. was the first time i i'd seen it and yeah it's it knocked me out it's 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 vivid. It's scary. It's the, the, the queer subtext is so delightful and yep. Cronenberg fucking crushes it. It's it, like, is this, crushes. is this the largest acting role that he has had in anything? Because it's, it's like up to that point. Yeah. I mean, he, that was one of the most, the only other one that I can think of is the, um, that movie that, uh, called extreme measures with, um, uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant, Grant and Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman. Yeah. And he had a you know, pretty, or maybe like Jason X, but right. this one's one where it's significant. Like, I was he, surprised. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was a he was maybe number four on the call right. sheet, you know, <laughs> and um, and and he's just terrifying. If you didn't know that it was the director of The Fly, right. you'd go, "That guy is fucking yeah. great." Yeah, like he he should make movies. Yes. Um, but he, and and I'm glad that you brought up the queer subtext too, because that was something that we tried to tackle um in Suitable Flesh a lot, mm. you know. October 27th. In <laughs> um, but, but that was one of the first films that I had ever seen that was taking genre and these, you know, more, I, and I hate to say taboo, but look in 1990 right. <laughs> being, being queer was a disease, right. you know, right. and Nightbreed was the cure in certain respects, <laughs> but to see that represented on screen was, um, was really something that I think a lot of people maybe didn't register at the moment, yeah. but now you look and look back and it being a time, like a time capsule piece, mm -hmm. it, it, I think it, it's definitely just resonated with people more and more. It was definitely ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And finally, he had a really great, Dark Man was one of his movies and he had a really great story about getting a Dark Man t-shirt from Sam Raimi, which is one of those like, yeah, you've been yeah. in the game for a little while when Sam yeah. Raimi handed you your Dark Man t-shirt. That was such a cool story. Here we go with that one. And I, I'll never forget being it at the first Fangoria's Weekend at Horrors uh, in New York City. Wow. And Sam was there. And he gave me, I wish I had it on me right now. He gave me a dark man shirt. I still have that dark wow. man shirt to this day. Wow. I will send you guys the picture yes. of that dark Do. man shirt from 1990. Yes, please. And and it's one of my, like, I know Josh Olson, uh, the d director of werewolves within, he's also a huge dark man fan. And I have to like hide the shirt from him. Cause I know he'll try, he'll rip it right from my fucking chest. <laughs> um, but, but it, but it is, um, it's a great action film. It's a great comic book film. It's a great thriller. Tony Gardner's effects are 
spectacular. Um, it really does hold up. I watched it again a couple months ago, and I think that if because of that heightened reality that Sam infuses into this comic book world, it it's kind of timeless. There's a couple wonky shots here and there when he's hanging from the sure. helicopter and stuff. Eh, so not not so great. But that was just the the effects back then. It was so it was really charming because he felt so bad at the end about how long we went, and it's always just like, dude, we'll edit. Like we're here to have a like. It's fun just to talk don't be to be boring. Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you don't we don't have to be short. Just don't yeah, be boring. Yeah, we don't mind when the show goes a little long when we got a fucking filmmaker guest who's seen like every movie we bring up and has something to say about all of them like that's mike called him a dream guest afterwards and that's very true um and see his movie because i i i don't want to i didn't want that to sound like a soft sell it is a lot of fun and i was in the mood to have a lot of fun when i watched it it's not a genre like breaking genre defining event you know what i mean it's not something in that way where we're sort of like hold on like how did you come up with this right 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 it is a celebration yeah of the movies that he loves yes you know put into like and there's all these sort of elements of lovecraft that are available Mm -hmm. you know because i mean what horror director doesn't yes you know what i mean to me it was one of those things where it was like the fun of that movie was seeing all of the different things that he pulled into it and all the stuff that he could pull off and the fact that he's working with actors who can go there with him and do that with him and make it credible and that was the fun of the movie you know agreed yeah Agreed. Good movie. The fun of the episode was, number one, finding out that Joe and I are basically the same age. And number two, (laughs) and I didn't, like, regale him with this, you know, during the regular show, but, like, he was doing the exact same thing at the exact same time at the Brookhaven Multiplex that I was doing at Cinemas East. Like, (laughs) I've talked about this on the show before, that thing of, like, yeah, of showing up at 1 o'clock, paying for the the first matinee, and then sneaking into stuff all day. And it's not. It has nothing to do with taste. It's about, okay, what's the movie that I can see in this slot so that I can go see Boys in the Hood again, you know, at 7.15. And that's how you end up seeing some things that maybe you didn't expect to see. Uh, but yeah, I was doing that quite a bit in 1990. Um, but one of the ones that I did not see in the theater, uh, I don't know if it wasn't showing at Cinema's Easter, if the times didn't work out because it was long, I didn't see Goodfellas until VHS. Um, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was I. I have since had the opportunity to see it theatrically because it it runs fairly often in revival screenings in New York and in you know Scorsese retros and stuff like that. But yeah, that was that was a VHS first time watch. Um, that time that I saw it, I've told the story before on the after show, the same weekend that I saw The Color of Money when uh, I rented, you know, that when Chris Miller rented his stack of Tom Cruise movies. Right. Like Goodfellas was the one that I got as my gimme. Um, and then that was, you know, within a few months of seeing Mo Better Blues, which I did see in the theater. And those really were the two movies that made me decide at 15 that I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, is it, is it best movie? Is what? Is Goodfellas his best movie? No, but it's, no, but it's his most exhilarating movie. And, uh, that goes a long way especially at 15 when you're like deciding that you want to be a filmmaker. Um, It's just, it's just, uh, he's just doing such inventive things with form and with style and with the camera and like Thelma's going fucking crazy in the editing room. And it's just like it, it, and it has, it has the energy of, a first time like it's like i mean like it's got the same sort of like let me show you what the fuck i can do that mean streets does but you know it's 17 years later that's, and he's an older man to but me. yeah so what's his best movie then it is because you've even seen the fucking new one yeah you scumbag yeah i haven't gotten a chance to yet yeah <laughs> um i mean it's I go. I feel like it's either Taxi Driver or Raging Bull, which I know are kind of like the basic bitch choices. But see, I think I I really think it's I do I I I think it's Goodfellas. But you prefer Casino to Goodfellas. So what are we? What are you even talking about? But I think it's I think because it's perfect. Yeah. Here's here's you know it's here's the thing I will say, and I don't want to oversell you on this new one. Like I'm I'm very afraid of that. But. I also think 
like all of the movies we're talking about are ones I've seen 10 or 12 or 20 times. I've seen Killers of the Flower Moon once. Yeah, yeah. I think it, but I think it's comparable to those. Wow. Like, I think, I think there are things that he is doing now because he has been making great movies for so long now that it is just like second nature to him. Like the thing we we've brushed on it occasionally, the thing that like that Paul Newman was doing as an actor at this age where just, he had lived on screen for so long that it was Mm. just second nature to him. Scorsese has been on a set for so long that it's just second nature to him. And there's now like no one working at the level of craftsmanship and understanding of how movies work that he has accumulated at, you know, what, like he's 81, he's 82 now. I, you know, he's, he is an old, old man. And these last two movies, this and the Irishman are these long, dense, uh, ambitious statements about mortality and America and insidiousness and capitalism and greed and and but they're also like thrilling to watch and they're funny and they're strange and he goes on these detours and digressions these narrative curly cues that are like and he's he's shifting tones with such nimbleness and I don't know anybody who can do all of those things at once the way he can now. And I don't know how you can do those things um, without this much experience at doing this thing. And yeah. at risk of giving away the thing that I will eventually write about this movie that I haven't written yet, this movie made me mad at Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Because he's he is it is a fucking bitch move to say I'm gonna stop making movies now before I start making bad ones. Like the level of refusal to grapple with cinema history, which he knows on the basis of like a handful of you know, I guess legit I'm sorry that Howard Hawks last three movies sucked, but like you are closer to Scorsese than you are to Howard Hawks. And if you are choosing not to acknowledge that he's doing some of the best uh, and most accomplished work of his career right now, then you're just refusing to like acknowledge reality. Like if you just if you don't want to make movies anymore because they're hard work and you would rather sit around and smoke weed and watch your VHS tapes like that's fine. I'm not going to begrudge you that like go with God. You've made your contribution, but don't pretend like you're somehow like, oh, you know, there's, there's all, there are so few, like you're making a sacrifice for us. Fuck you. No, (laughs) no. Cause, cause I feel like once upon a time in Hollywood in many ways is the closest thing that he's done to the thing that I'm talking about that Scorsese's doing now in these last two movies, that sort of nimbleness of, 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 of working on a broad canvas and really going on a lot of different unexpected places. Um, we were talking about Goodfellas and now I've gone into a whole check about this, <laughs> this whole other thing. I think it, I like as the more I like, I think it's his best movie because of the editing, like, and mm. because of, you know, the sort of purity, like you're talking about mean streets, like, you know, to me, like Goodfellas is the other time after mean streets mm-hmm. when it feels like this is his like purest Mm-hmm. It, it feels like he like if he was going to improv a movie, which I yeah, know yeah, yeah. that's not how movies work. No, Believe I understand me, what I know, you mean. But like, I understand what you mean. You know, when when it's you know, it is like this is the movie that he naturally was going to make. Yeah, you know, whatever. Like, if he only made one or two movies, they yeah. would have sort of followed in that particular thing. It is his sort of like depth of ability um, that has you know made him able to make all those other movies. But the purest, most natural expression of his filmmaking is mean streets but then by the time he made goodfellas he had that same energy but much more ability 
Yeah. And, you know, sort of more more options and, and stuff like that. And more accomplished collaborators, is, you know, in ca- in camera, in the editing room. Yeah. But it really comes down to Thelma and it's yeah. not, you know, and it's not that like, oh, this is like a better editing than she did on the other movies or whatever. Right. Like, it's not to sort of say like this is her at her best. It's to say like this is a combination of his most natural expression and mm-hmm. the thing that she does better than anybody else, mm-hmm. which is editing that type of movie, yeah. you know, and yeah. the, the pace of it and the sort of, you know, the, the one direct shot of it, all those things that, you know, you are that the conversations we've had about casino and, and about Goodfellas, right? Like to me, like casino is the grander sure. sort of larger, bigger, more beautiful fucking version of it. But like really, like my if I'm on death row and I only get to eat one more time, my <laughs> fucking meal is a cheeseburger and some French fries and a cold Coke. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. that's my fucking, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily the birthday meal I'm going to have every year, but that's my death row meal. Yeah. You know, and Goodfellas is that like just straight injection. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's the idea that that movie and in, in, in <clears throat> Misery sort of came out at this it just like. Yeah, they're just yeah. Well, when yeah. it turned it's thirty, yeah, when it turned thirty a couple of years ago, I wrote a thing for the Times that I'll link on extra credit, I think, um, where because it was a strange moment where there were there were suddenly all of these gangster movies that came out in the space of mm. uh, like four months in that fall, you know, and it was uh, and even a couple that I didn't get to in the piece, but like Goodfellas came out then, Miller's Crossing, which we talked about, came out then, but then the one that was supposed to be the sort of the the you know the 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 crest of that wave, which I can't believe we didn't even get to in the main show, was Godfather Three. Um, Godfather Three. <laughs> so remind me where you where, where where do you stand on on Godfather Three and and it's it's uh you know the the the, the popular opinion on that one. Which of fucking you know Michael Jordan's NBA championship years do you like the best? <laughs> you know, right, I mean, right. it really is sort of like it is a great fucking movie. But there and are like, people you know, out there who not fantastic who in, in it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing is that the other two movies, every performance is perfect. Right. You know, like every bit of dialogue is perfect. Right. Everything that happens is perfect. Right. You know, and so it, it's just it's one of those things where it's like it's it, the comparison is the the only way right that you know that the movie falters at all in yeah. any way whatsoever is by being compared to two of the other greatest movies that have ever been made right so like the things that you know I'm not a the things that you can ding the movie on you know are 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 only in comparison right I feel like which is mm-hmm. sort of not fair mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know the other thing is if you watch the movie you know sort of in if you know, like he was saying about Back to the Future Three, right, right, you right. know, if you sort of when you're watching it, sort of as a piece, yeah, to me it it really works, you yeah. know, and and part of why is because I just fucking love the Pope character, dude. I know yeah. he's not Pope, but like you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the Vatican guy, the yeah. chain smoking Vatican guy, yeah, I just fucking love, man. I think he's really, really good. Yeah, you know that performance is really good. The character, you know, everything about that particular thing is really good. And so much of the movie hinges on that relationship and on that storyline mm. that I think that like for me being able to plug into that character and that actor helps with the movie. Have you seen I like it. I think it's good. Have you seen the recut? Have you seen the Godfather Coda? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I th- I think that is like Coppola's weird because with the exception of Apocalypse Now, I think all of his recuts have made the movies better. <laughs> I think they've all made them better. I think Cotton Club Encore is way better than Cotton Club. Um, I think there was, I had another example that has now, um, eluded me and I, oh, the outsiders, I think the, the, his longer cut of the outsiders is better. And I think the Godfather Coda is better partially because he rearranges it and starts it with that scene between Michael and Mm -hmm. the Vatican guy. And like, number one, that just like, that just makes the sort of central, uh, conflict so clear from the jump, but also it feels much more like the opening scene in Godfather One. Like it creates a clearer sort of mm-hmm. shadow 
of that. It's fascinating to me how human that whole thing remains, mm-hmm. that whole storyline remains. Because when you start talking about like Vatican power brokers, right? You know, and guys that are pulling chains in the Vatican, it very quickly becomes Illuminati. Yes, it very quickly becomes all of this Dan Brown bullshit. Right. You know, which is just sort of which the Godfather never was. Yeah. Like that was another thing about the Godfather. It was like you knew how powerful these guys were, but. It stays so insular yeah. that you only sort of know how powerful they are because, like, they are being talked about at a congressional hearing. Right. Like, what the fuck? Right. You know what I mean? And so that it, it's sort of the, the fact that that guy is chain smoking and, like, you know he has diarrhea. Like, it just, <laughs> like the, the fact that the sort of Vatican, you know, huge money, the fact that that aspect of it remains so human yeah. to me is very hard and and makes it much better. Yeah, it, it makes the whole it's, it rem- it keeps the whole thing in, in a level of sort of blood and bone mm-hmm. that Vatican power brokers are usually vampires, right? Before the fucking <laughs> movie's done, right? You know. Yeah, I will also say this too about because I've always been sort of a Godfather three defender, um, and I think a lot of that also has to do with my experience of the series, which is this that you know, like I've said, I w- I had just turned fifteen. Um, when Godfather 3 was coming out, it was a huge event, as I'm sure you can imagine if you were not alive then. And as part of the run-up to it, HBO ran Godfather 1 and 2, like, all through that December. I had never seen any of these movies. And I was, you know, 14, had just turned 15, so my dad decided I was, like, old enough to see them. So Chris Miller and I, the aforementioned Chris Miller and I, (laughs) he who had also never seen them, we watched Godfather 1, and then, you know, a couple nights later, we watched Godfather 2. And then, like, a couple nights after that, we went to see Godfather 3. And, like, that was the right way to, to do that. Just yeah. in terms of, like, not being overwhelmed by fucking mystique. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't have, yeah. you know, um, 16 and 18 years to build Godfather 3 up in our heads. We had, like, a day and a half. So (laughs) we didn't, you know, they just seemed a very natural extension to us because we had just seen the first two. Um, So that, too, I think is. But yeah, that that Godfather Coda, man, is is tight as a drum. Um, Also, like, I don't think everybody realizes that the the crew on Godfather 3 was all the dudes that were alive still from Godfather 2. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of those things that, like, it wasn't sort of obvious to me at the time Mm -hmm. that I've learned since. Yeah. And in watching it since then, after having learned more about how all of that stuff got made and so on and so forth. No, Gordon Willis shot it again. And, you know, Dean Tavalaris is the production designer again and all. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. And you can tell. And, like, they were on the fucking job. Like, none of those guys had lost their, you know, had lost their their edge, Mm -hmm. their ability. If Mm -hmm. anything, they'd just gotten better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Okay, and so then I did also want to touch on, because I mentioned it earlier, uh, Mo' Better Blues. Um, which I'm not sure that we've ever talked about, but where do you sit on Mo' Better Blues? I mean, the first time I saw this movie uh, was because you told me to. Mm. I, I don't remember for sure if, if we were together or not, but mm-hmm. I do remember you liking this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not in 1990, but by 1991, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> like I remember, you know, this was one of those things that, that you enjoyed. So I haven't seen it nearly as much as a lot of his other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I did enjoy it. I don't recall it super well now, but I remember being like, yeah, yeah, Bailey was right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's what's interesting about Mo Better Blues for me. I mean, the reason I like I said that I was so drawn to it because I saw it around the same time as Goodfellas was just like it's one of it's one of his most just pure style pictures. Um, especially in that early, you know, it's one of, one of the ones that Ernest Dickerson shot. Um, it's just beautiful. It's beautifully shot. It's this, you know, because he's working in this milieu of these sort of, you know, uh, uh, 
Brooklyn jazz clubs and like, you know, Ruthie Carter's costumes are just immaculate because they're a successful jazz group. So they're all like they all they work in a beautiful club. They're wearing these incredible like, you know, uh, custom suits. Uh, it's Denzel like playing a trumpet like on the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, it's just it's a gorgeous <laughs> movie. And the reason that it struck me so much at that moment where I was sort of deciding I wanted to be a filmmaker was just it's it's full of uh, of these really talented guys showing me what a director's job is like that and Goodfellas were both movies where I was extremely aware of the director's voice and style and the choices he was making. And, you know, uh, it's the first movie where Spike does the Spike shot. Um, <laughs> the, the, the moving on the dolly yeah. shot. Like that's the first yeah. one it's in there for. Um, but there's also this incredible shot in it where like he's, it's a love scene that I think is scored even to a track from, uh, either kind of blue or I love Supreme where like the room is spinning around him and Cinda Williams and it's really hot, but also really like, how did he do that? That's amazing. You know, mm. um, th- when it came out, it was not terribly well reviewed because it was his first movie after do the right thing. But the thing is that this is, you know, when Spike was in his thing where he was wanting to work at the Woody Allen pace. So like, he was shooting Mo Better Blues like while Do the Right Thing was in theaters. Like this was not him formulating like, you know, my next big movie after this movie that shook the world. Like he didn't know Do the Right. He had a feeling, I'm sure, but he didn't know Do the Right Thing was going to be received like it was. This was just the movie he wanted to make next. His dad was a jazz musician. He wanted to make a movie about jazz music. That's the thing about it to me is that it just like you can feel how much he loves everything. Yeah. It's a jazz in New York City, like yeah. it just feels so, so like he just loves everything happening here so much. And, and that's also the, the feeling that yeah. I've, I've seen it since. And that was like because that was the other thing is that the first time I saw the movie, I didn't have, you know, a deep knowledge of jazz. Right. You know, I had a beginner's like I yeah. definitely knew kind of blue. Sure. You know, but didn't necessarily know Love Supreme. Sure. You know, and and it just like the love that's present in that movie for everything that's happening. It makes you want to listen to jazz. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you want to walk across the Brooklyn bridge. Yes. You know, it makes you want to like, it makes you want to love those things in the same way that he does. Yeah. And also you know? it's a really, it's really fun to see him sort of putting together and holding together kind of a stock company of actors of people he had worked with, just worked with on do the right thing, you know? So, so, um, uh, Giancarlo Esposito has a great role in there. Robin Harris is great in it, just kind of being Robin Harris. Um, mm-hmm. Sam Jackson pops up very briefly, but he's in there. You know what I mean? Like he's he's putting the rep company together on that one. Um, I don't know. I just I've I've always loved it. And there's there's a monologue that Denzel has at the end of that movie, towards the end, when he sort of bursts into the home of of the woman he has decided he loves, and and tells her asks her to save his life and it's one of the most especially in that period some of the most vulnerable stuff that denzel washington has ever done it's a really sort of wrenching confession of love sort of thing which is rare number one because it's so vulnerable but number two because he so rarely got the chance to be a romantic lead you know at that especially at that point in his career which we've talked about elsewhere um, so it's fun to see him be sexy in this movie. You know, he's 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 a matinee idol. And fuck, it was the first collaboration between the two of them. It was the first Spike and Denzel movie. I think you see in the next year, the net, the script he wrote next and wrote for the, you know, and made the next year was Jungle Fever. And Jungle Fever feels much more like this is the movie I'm making after Do the Right Thing Shook the World um, in mostly good ways. But I think this is fun just as him, like as a, as a, an exercise in pure style and beauty and affection. Um, and I think it it holds up. I've revisited it uh, quite a lot of times. Um, should we do a do a lightning round? Yeah, bro. It's like uh, tomorrow. It is. Where you live. It is. That's OK. It's fine. I'll get some rest. Um, uh, yeah. Do. Um, yeah. Put put five, but maybe we'll go longer. How about flatliners? 
I really liked Flatliners at the time. Um, Hell I, yeah. It's, it's Hell yeah. Joel Schumacher. It's a lot of style. Uh, it was Julia Roberts right off a of pretty woman. And I had such a crush on her. Uh, I rewatched this when it came out on 4k a little while back and it's still entertaining. The witches and the grifters. Angelica Houston double play. Man, she is great yes. in both of these movies in in very different but also semi-evil roles. Uh, but I like both of these uh, quite a bit. Um, the Grifters I saw around that time. The Witches I only saw a couple of years ago, and I loved it. Miami Blues. Uh, this was also one that I came to many years later, but it's... Uh, a really great weird little crime picture with uh, one of my favorite Alec Baldwin performances um, and Fred Ward mentioned earlier for Tremors. Uh, Fred Ward had a nice 1990. Kindergarten cop. It's not a tumor. Um, <laughs> I have not watched Kindergarten cop since December 1990, but I enjoyed it very much in December 1990. Problem child. Uh, friend uh, of... Uh, Past and future guest Larry Karaszewski was one of the writers of Problem Child, and in the interest of maintaining that friendship and relationship, I will pass on Problem Child. <laughs> I mentioned this at the end of the episode, but I didn't hear your opinion on Pump Up the Volume. I do like Pump Up the Volume, and I have revisited it, and it is such a 90s artifact. Like, it is so of its moment. Um, but I wrote actually a thing for Flavorwire about how it is a nice sort of look ahead at... Uh, a gatekeeper free future um, in terms of, of nice. teens like having a way to express themselves like in a public forum. It sort of predated all of that that was just around the corner um, in some really interesting ways, I think. Edward Scissorhands. One of the few Tim Burton movies that I un, uh, apol- uh, unreservedly endorse. I I think Edward I like that. I was going to say, I, you better not talk shit on nah, Edward Scissorhands. It's terrific. It's really, ter- <laughs> it's really terrific. And also one of the few Tim Burton movies that's good, that's uh, where all of the goodness can be attributed to him. Not him uh, making a good movie because he's working with somebody else who's a genius. I'm not as hard as on him as you are. I that's slightly not as hard as it on him as you are, but yeah. I, I unreservedly enjoy Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. Cry baby. I am ashamed to say this is one of the few John Waters movies that I still have never seen. And there's no good reason uh, that I shouldn't have seen. Yeah, I'll watch Cry Baby. I'll get on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he's it's this interesting thing where like the he sort of had the budgets and mm-hmm. the casts that there was some sort of expectation that he would not necessarily be so fucking John Watersy, right? And he just keeps not giving a fuck and yep. being John Waters. Yep. You know, yeah. Crybaby's cool. Yep. Bonfire of the Vanities mm-hmm. backslash. Didn't see this one coming. Joe versus the volcano. Well, I see how it happened after. Yeah. But wouldn't have done no, that myself. Two Tom Hanks movies. Neither of them terribly sure. well received. Neither of them terribly successful commercially. Joe versus the volcano has had the much healthier afterlife. Um, yeah. I, as I mentioned, saw this on, in theatrical release uh, at a sneak preview with Pretty Woman. Didn't like it. Didn't get it. Didn't know what the fuck it was about. Wasn't, you know, like, but, you know, I was also 14. I didn't understand, you know, black comedy. I didn't understand dystopian yeah. humor. Um, I went back to this a few years ago when it came out on Blu-ray and it's terrific. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's John Patrick Shanley, like cashing in that moonstruck chip and like i'm gonna make my weird fucking <laughs> jumping into a volcano movie uh bonfire of the vanities is not good but some of the filmmaking in it like De Palma, just like really doing some cool shit with the camera um which i appreciate yeah. the thing that people you know we've uh our friend matt singer future guest matt singer wrote a really interesting thing uh back in 90 about how this came out like three months after Goodfellas and has a similarly spectacular Steadicam shot that now nobody remembers or talks about. Um, <laughs> but it's like one of the first things in this movie is this great opening credit Steadicam thing that like, if nothing else, just go check that out. Um, Bonfire the Vanities didn't That's work. another pairing I never yeah. would have seen coming. <laughs> yeah. Bonfire the Vanities doesn't work, but it's a really interesting failure. White Hunter, Black Heart. I saw this for the first time a couple of years ago when I was uh, pre-writing a thing for When Clint Eastwood Dies. And um, White Hunter Blackheart is one of his best movies. It's, uh, and nobody saw it because it's this like, it's basically this like thinly veiled account of like John Huston 
uh, going to Africa to make the African queen, but mostly as an excuse to like go hunting. Um, but it turns into this sort of really fascinating um, look at this, the, the, the slack that we allow our artistic geniuses. Um, it's very, very good. It's very good. Okay. Awakenings. Awakenings was one of my favorite movies of 1990 in 1990 because I loved Robin Williams so much. I loved Robert De Niro so much. It was so exciting that they were making a movie together. I maintain this is one of Robin Williams' great greatest performances just because there's not a speck of him in it. There's no, there is not the scene where he just does some wacky voices to cheer people up or something like that. Like it's an incredibly reserved uh, performance, and it's a really, really good one. Days of Thunder. I have been able to you know go along with a lot of the reappropriation of tony scott junk as quality and i agree with a lot of it days of thunder is just shit it's just a shitty like (laughs) it's just a shitty race car movie it's just top gun with race cars and you know how i feel about top gun blue steel blue steel is getting a blu-ray from i want to say i can't remember who's putting it out but there's a blu-ray of that one coming out soon which is good because it's been very hard to see for a very long time and it is a solid solid um, uh, Catherine Bigelow movie with a really good Jamie Lee Curtis performance, and it's a it's a good early '90s New York movie. Pacific Heights. I you know what I never did get around to seeing Pacific Heights, which I should because I'm a big Michael Keaton guy, uh, but I never made it to that one. The Two Jakes. Uh, I like the Two Jakes when I saw it like uh, right after I saw Chinatown for the first time in a sort of a Godfather three scenario. Uh, I have not revisited it, so I have no idea if it holds up. Another 48 hours. I was keenly disappointed in 1990 by another 48 hours. Um, It's such a, it's such a come down from the heights of 48 hours. And I rewatched it when it came out on 4k a few months ago, and I'm still not wild about it but it does have some good sequences. This is one of those ones where there's a whole backstory, which you can read about and I'll link about to where like um, Paramount made Walter Hill cut like 20 minutes out of this movie, like two weeks before release. Um, and it ended up sort of mangling the, the internal logic of the movie. I wish that that footage existed somewhere. Cause I would very much like to see his longer version of another 48 hours. Robocop two still haven't seen it. Predator 2. Not very good. Man. Not very good. If it's got a Predator in it. Not very good. I'm watching it. (laughs) And finally, Rocky V. You know what? Here's the thing about Rocky V. That's a five. That's a five. Um... I like Rocky five more than most people. Most people will tell you that Rocky five is the worst movie in the series. Um... I've made my feelings known about that and about Rocky four. Um, I appreciated at the time and still do what Stallone was trying to do with Rocky five. He didn't quite pull it off and actually ended up pulling it off more successfully if many years later in Rocky Balboa. But the idea that like the series had become so sort of glossy and soulless that he concocted a kind of a stretch of a story where Rocky ends up broken back in Philly again, brought John G. Abelson back in to direct it. Um, and was really trying to do something that was more uh, grounded and human and Is closer this the one with the big to white boy. Yeah, yeah. So that part's a fairy tale, but the rest of it was him trying to do something that was closer in style and approach to the original. And I like, I appreciate that he was trying to do that kind of a full circle thing. And I think his performance in it is, is, is quite good. So there's my, Bro, I hated fucking Tommy Morrison when he yeah. was like uh, an active boxer and yeah. trying to go be an actor just made me hate him all that much worse. That's fair. And I really like Rocky four. So this movie was just sort of like, I know I, I've just, because this was also, do you remember? Do you remember Brian Bosworth? Oh, I sure do. The Boz. He was a, a linebacker cold. for Oklahoma University, I think, <laughs> and then he went and played like six games for the Seahawks or something. Uh-huh. Like for some reason, like Tommy Morrison and Brian Bosworth's personalities have just always been mixed up for me. And I didn't particularly like either one of them. Yeah. Uh, so I might have to watch this one again and like with more of a focus on Rocco and and a little less on on Tommy. Here's the only know. here's only one more I want to throw in one more uh recommendation because it was almost I almost went with this for my pick at the end. If you haven't seen Sydney Lumet's Q&A, um 
Hell yeah. I, I don't know how, how easy it is to see right now, but Q&A is, is so good and so underseen. Uh, it is the, the, the totally uh, logical sort of third in the, for my, for my money, the, the four great Sidney Lumet dirty cop movies, um, which are Serpico, Prince of the City, Q&A, and uh, Night Falls on Manhattan. Um, Q&A is really good, really smart uh, based on a book by Edwin Edwin Torres, who was like a, a a New York City judge, who also wrote the book that was the basis for Carlito's Way, and a monster Nick Nolte performance as just the worst corrupt New York cop, like may one of the worst maybe ever put on film. Like he's you know and like. Like I mean, then that's hard. Yeah, to be like the ne- no. the dirtiest cop yeah. in a Sidney Lumet movie, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. Sidney Lumet's uh, that's hard to yeah. do, and he yeah. fucking kills it. Yeah, it's a really yeah. really good performance. I really love Q and A. So track track that one down. Well, he's got a can. lot of that sort of of that like Gene Hackman French connection sort mm-hmm. of of, um, you know, like I run the fucking yes. room. You know yes. what I mean? Like he's got a lot of that stuff going on, except he's way more physically imposing mm-hmm. than Gene Hackman. Mm-hmm. Like he really feels like that big like cock diesel white boy that yeah, will yeah, fuck yeah. you up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good movie, dude. It is, yeah. and a really good early Luis Guzman performance. I'd like to shout out. Always hey. try to shout out Luis doing his thing. Um, <laughs> all right, Mike, you got anything else for nineteen ninety? Nineteen ninety, man. I just you know as I was watching his movies and sort of thinking about some of the other movies around. It, you know, it's, I mean, the movies that came out in 1990 were shot in the 80s, right? Yeah. I mean, it's sort yeah. of, we know how this works, yep. you know, right? But I was really amazed by how these movies, so many of these movies don't feel like 80s movies. Right. And I know that, that no, sounds I know what you sort mean. of, it sounds like sort of an obvious point, you know, but it really like, these movies felt like a new age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in movies yeah. in a sort of way that I had forgotten about. Yeah. Possibly because we lived through it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like possibly because this was the first sort of like new era of movies that we were really paying attention to. Yeah. Like right before all of the new Hollywood stuff started to hit, you know, and all of the, the sort of 90 indie stuff started to hit. Yeah. So like it might be sort of my presence and memories of it. But I don't think so yeah. because I'm watching them again now, and it's like these movies feel like movies that were about to come out, not yeah. movies that had just come out. Yeah. You know, Agreed. 1990 feels a lot more like 95 than it does 85. <laughs> Thanks, Joe Lynch, for sort of like bringing yeah. that back to my life. Yes, you indeed. Know? Yes, indeed. All Good right. shit. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very